I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Billy Estes, the executive director at the Historic Midwest Theatre and the Sky View in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Billy Estes has been part of the Friends of the Midwest Theatre team for 21 years, starting as a technician and projectionist until he became executive director in 2013. Since then, he has managed three capital campaigns and is now in the middle of a major marquee restoration project due to be completed in the fall of 2022. These major projects have totaled $1.4 million in work and fundraising. During COVID-19, Billy was responsible for pivoting the organization, offering a free pop-up outdoor screening. This has led to the opening of a permanent drive-in theater, the Skyview. When Billy is not at the theater, he enjoys spending time on the tractor, tending to crops on his organic farm near Bayard, Nebraska, with his partner Jonathan. They grow hay, corn, and over 80 types of pumpkins and squash, offered via a U-Pick pumpkin patch in the fall. Billy. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I have been to the Midwest Theatre, and you've kindly given me a little bit of a tour and some of the history behind it. The Midwest Theatre is a historic building, and I wonder if you might share just a little bit more about you know, what is the Midwest Theatre? The Midwest Theatre uh, is a gem in western Nebraska. Uh, as the Star Herald called it uh, in our opening edition of the paper uh, when we opened 75 years ago on May 3rd of 1946, that you could see the beacons for miles away uh, on the top of the marquee, and particularly from the top of Scottsbluff National Monument. Uh, so uh, we're, we just celebrated our 75th anniversary last year. The theater operated uh, commercially from 1946 to 1996, uh, and then closed and then became a community-ran organization, mission-based theater, uh, the fall of 1998, when the Friends of the Midwest Theater was was formed to take over the care and the love that it needs to survive. It's a particularly beautiful building. Um, oh. And and I, I wonder if, it, again, this is an audio medium, right? Oh, yes. But I, I wonder mm-hmm. if you might offer some sort of verbal texture to, so to the, the beauty. The theater is designed uh, in the art, modern architectural style. Uh, it's a... Uh, similar to Art Deco, but instead of having straight lines and squares, it has these long flowing floral type patterns, uh, kind of paisley shapes, cornucopias on the walls. Uh, It has a a beautiful blue and pink pastel color palette. Um, And when you attend an event or a movie at the Midwest Theater, at least for me personally, and I believe that most of the community feels this way as well, is it's just as much about going to the theater itself. The theater itself is the show, uh, along with all of the wonderful artists and movies that the screen showcases. If I'm correct, it, it was called The Egyptian. So the, the Egyptian Theater opened on this site uh, of the Midwest Theater uh, in 1927. 
uh, the Egyptian theater burned March 5th of 1945. And then the the, the owner, uh, the Ostenberg family uh, here in Scottsbluff at the time, uh, rebuilt the theater and opened it uh, as the Midwest Theater. And it's a really decadent space. Uh, if you think about historically what was going on in 1946, it was, you know, post-World War II. There was shortage of materials and, and funds to do things. Um, but William uh, Ostenberg, the guy's name, he you know he took no uh, spared no expense to to bring uh, a grand theater back to Midwest, and I really truly believe that its grandeur has is what has saved it over the years. Uh, you know, there was at one time five different theaters on Broadway in downtown Scotts Bluff, and we are the only one that remains. I don't think you can have a historic building without there being ghosts. There are ghosts, right? We do believe we have three ghosts. Uh, we do have one of them named. Uh, uh, over several conversations about 10, 15 years ago, decided to kind of claim one of these individuals in our community. Uh, in the 1920s, uh, during the Spanish flu epidemic, um, there was a, a performer in town that his stage name was Miss Bish. And uh, she would go around and perform funeral masses on the porches of the deceased. Um, and his, his real name uh, was Howard Bishop. Uh, he's buried, I believe, in Elmwood, Nebraska, if I remember my history right. But uh, one of our local museums, Legacy of the Plains, has several artifacts of his uh, and the dresses that he, that he wore uh, while performing as Miss Bish, uh, along with his portable organ. So uh, it's a great story, uh, and we, we love to claim Miss Bish. That's the ghost that we claim it these days. What was that moment when um, you got involved so long ago with, uh, with the theater? Shortly moving after to Scott's Bluff, um, I attended my first film here, which would have been the first Lord of the Rings. Um, but like I just said a moment ago, um, coming to that movie was really more about the theater itself just enamored me. Um, particularly, I had never been in a theater that had rocking chairs in it. And just thinking, man, these are really cool. Um, and, then, and then within about 30 days uh, of, of uh, probably attending that first movie, um, I had some employment opportunity offered to me here at the theater through a, a stage production of a piece of children's theater through the West Nebraska Art Center. And uh, shortly after that, the theater, one of the members of the board of directors of the theater came to me and said, hey, we'd like you to come to work for us. So actually never applied for a job here, um, so to speak. It just was offered and I have stuck around. Right time, right place. Well, right time, right place, but you've been right time, right place for 21 years. How did this journey, um, how did that manifest? Well, you know, early on, the theater was uh, in capital campaign mode, renovation mode. Uh, my predecessor, uh, Willa Cosman, uh, was running the show, but didn't really have the the time to, to program. And programming is what really feeds my soul. Um, gathering the souls to experience art uh, is really what makes me come to work every day. Um, and so getting to to kind of finesse and feel my way uh, along with the blessing of the board to, to provide programming to Scott's Bluff 
uh, started about 16, 17 years ago with our first concert and then turned into a series. Uh, and then through that as well, also kind of developing and crafting uh, our, our film programming uh, and kind of trying to figure out what our community wants to see uh, from a mission-based perspective versus just like, this is what we're putting on screen. And just time has allowed that to happen. Your theatre provides mission-based film programming for the community that you serve. And I'm wondering, what does that mean in terms of how you go about a critical cultural aesthetic? Um, to what degree do you feel that you are pushing the envelope while at the same time also serving good family entertainment? I mean, I think that's like the alchemy of a programmer, you know, is how you meet the community versus your own perspective. Um, I will say that I'm blessed with lots of community members that are not afraid to share their opinions, uh, and I and we have to listen to them. Uh, and we have a we have a bit of a programming matrix that we use as well. That as we look at the different types of programming, whether it be film or live performing arts, you know that we're we're looking for some film that uh, or some programming that really fits in a mission perspective, uh, and that can be slightly defined by what it is and what guideposts it's meeting along with film or programming that is also meeting some high revenue streams to offset the more mission-based programming. But I think it's important from a film perspective, particularly, um, you know, the definition of an art house looks very different depending on the community that we're in. So film streams, if we were in Omaha or the Ross and Lincoln, um, the opportunity that the citizens of those communities to see film is a, a much more broader opportunity to, to, to do that. And they can have a, an organization that maybe specializes more in foreign film or uh, festival content or indie content. But because the Midwest has really kind of become all for all, we have to kind of really make that mix kind of stirred up and, and fit. Um, so, you know, we, you know, we're doing the, the crossover uh, uh art house content that kind of the many major studios are releasing versus the really indie stuff that has just a small crowd, like a small percentage of our population may uh, attract to, along with the family programming is a huge piece of our puzzle. And then there's even a subsect of, you know, some faith-based film programming and concert performances. And it all kind of has to come together and fit in one of those boxes at any given time over the course of the year. And of course, the Midwest theater, it, it, it's not just film as a moving image you've uh, as a theater as a venue you you are curating or hosting all sorts of other artistic sort of presentations right so like an example the last 25 days here uh we've had everything from the the red hot chili pipers uh in the middle of of march um to we had a, a grammy nominated christian artist rhett walker uh, to just this last week, we had a, a beautiful string ensemble called Collective Nine from Montreal that did one of the most moving pieces of gypsy music I've ever heard in my life. Um, and it was an absolute magical night here at the theater. So it's really about being very diverse uh, and servicing programming that meets many different cultural communities within what we serve. Yeah. I don't wanna slow down, I don't wanna slow down, I don't wanna slow down till I burn out. I just wanna live fast, I don't wanna look back and say I could have done more than I did not. Sometimes it can be hard, yeah, it can be hard, yeah, it can be hard when you grow up. People fill you with doubt, you start thinking about what you're gonna do now. But we, we 
me go one chance and go one life to live And it's do or die, gotta make it count So lose your worries, let your problems go on Until my whole body burns out, I ain't never gonna slow down wondering if there's anything that you look back on and you think oh this was a film or a series or a set of performances that really took scott's bluff in a you know a different direction it really changed the dialogue happening in the community i don't know if there's any one piece of programming um that has done or that i would say that it has been that but i i think that if we look at historically a, a series of film of like 10 years of film programming and some of those pieces there's been cultural films um, that have changed people's viewpoints slightly um, and you know for about i don't know 15 years brokeback mountain held our attendance record so kind of an interesting film that would hold that weekend record um, but then you look at a, like a single night movie. There was a film that uh, Ben Stein released, uh, and the name of it escapes me right now. But it was a faith-based movie, uh, and so it was. It held our single night sellout, seven hundred plus seats record. And and then with twenty twenty happening, uh, particularly the new film Crudes Two that was released the fall of twenty twenty holds our organizational. Uh, highest gross but it actually wasn't even in the building it was at the drive-in so there's there's all these different ways to look at uh how the programming impact on us internally but then how does that affect externally as well so obviously we have to talk about the pandemic not least because of the innovations that you have brought about before we get to the pandemic though so um you know here we are leading up to sort of 2019 you know technology was already taking over and the, the in-home theater experience is becoming more accessible. And I'm wondering if the business of running a theater was getting more and more challenging. And, and this is before you hit the pandemic. We had not really seen uh, a huge change in our film audience pre-pandemic. Um, maybe the last four or five months, but just like the very tail end of 2019. Um, but the the movie industry has substantially changed if we look at from 2012 which was kind of the uh, introduction of digital cinema uh, through 2019 there was lots of changes in that six to seven year period but um, moving forward to covid the changes that happened during covid uh, happened at a much more rapid pace uh, almost to the point you couldn't keep up with it on a daily basis, how things were changing and pivoting. Let's jump into the pandemic then. I mean, uh, and I'm sure we can all reflect back on March 2020 when all of a sudden it seemed as if the world came to a, to a stop. And then there was a huge degree of uncertainty about what on earth was happening from this point on. At that moment, just as the pandemic really hit and isolation began what was going through your mind and what was happening at the theater? Well, 
circumstantially, uh, our board had uh, just approved a new strategic plan uh, in February of 20. Uh, and one of the, the goalposts uh, that they had set for us was to how and to look at what we could do to take our programming outside of the walls because we had become very centric that the bulk of the programming we were offering was within the four walls that we exist in. So because of that conversation that had been taking place for you know six months prior to that uh, and that kind of pivotal moment and shift and like, this is what we want to do, we were very poised uh, strategically and organizationally to say, let's do something outside. And in fact, we had even discussed uh, you know, a pop-up movie uh, in a park kind of situation. Uh, we had no idea that it would turn into what it has turned into. Um, you know, we closed uh, the theater similarly with the rest of the world on March 16th. Uh, and we did our first pop-up drive-in cinema March 26th, 10 days later. Um, I, you know, struggled on a personal level of like, thinking, oh crap, you know, the theater's closed. What are we going to do? How are we going to engage with our community? Uh, and that first weekend, um, it would have been like the 20, 21st of March, uh, there was an article uh, in Variety magazine uh, that I found on a Sunday morning and had talked about how drive-in movies had had the best weekend they had had in 40 years. And uh, I called uh, my general manager mid-morning Sunday, because, and I decided, said, hey, we should do something. Do you want to go for a drive? Uh, let's see if we can figure out where we can project a, a film on the side of a building. Like, we got to do something. I'm not going to sit here. So um, that Sunday, we did that. Uh, then we reached out to our health department and said, hey, we want to give this a try. What are your, like, we won't do it without your blessings. Uh, how can we help to, to make things better, and but not make them worse at the same time? And then I had to go to the board. And at the time, I do think a few members of my board thought I was a, a little uh, crazy for asking to do something. And I was very adamant that if we were going to do it, that it needed to happen immediately, not in six weeks or two months or three months down the road. It was that we needed to do it now. So that was Tuesday uh, of that week. And we did our first movie on Thursday of that week. And uh, we had 97 cars that we parked uh, and we turned about another 100 away. So that's kind of how it started. Obviously, there's been a two-year journey from there to here, but it clearly has become popular enough that even with the Midwest theater itself reopening and perhaps aptly with, I think it was with Nomadland that Midwest theater yes. reopened. Mm -hmm. But the drive-in didn't go away. If anything, it's now become a permanent part of your, um, you know, your endeavors. So how was that determination made? How, how did that become possible? Well, we ran our temporary pop-up drive-in uh, at the parking lot of the Legacy of the Plains Museum in Gearing. Um, we were there 12 weeks. Uh, in that first two weeks, we made some changes from a, a box truck to shipping containers for a screen. Uh, but the last week we were at, the, at that location, the, we took the screen down uh, and moved it to our permanent location, which is now uh, out by the uh, Western Nebraska Regional Airport. Uh, and then we opened there June 12th uh, with Field of Dreams um, because you build it, they will come. 
I had definitely had that moment uh, while we were getting ready. I had my grandfather's 1950s Massey tractor out in the lot, you know, doing some work, uh, getting ready for us to be open. Uh, and then we were open from June of 2020 through October of 21. Uh, we operated the whole first winter because it really wasn't practical to be open indoors, mostly due to costs of operation. Uh, of a big room. Um, and it was just, we could kind of hedge our expenses by keeping the hardtop closed and, and, and being remain open at the drive-in. And the, the ebb and flow of COVID waves didn't really affect us there. So um, yeah, so the drive-in just became what it was kind of for us, so to speak. And then we've been closed the winter of 21 22 thankfully because it's just it was it was kind of getting to be too much uh, but we are um prepping to open uh back up at the drive-in on the 22nd of april is there a film or something i should be seeing if you haven't seen power of the dog just like what a story of like male toxicity that i mean that's how i took it and like i think because i also have that that farm and 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 that ranch background you know my my mother's family are all ranchers from the sand hills oh it was it was a good watch that just like continually here i watched it i watched it over christmas so four and a half months later right it's still coming up in conversations belfast was really good we have coda coming up children of deaf adults i think is what the acronym is for i have screened it it's a really moving title Movie industry, movie business right now is very finicky, I think is the term. My gut doesn't know what to do when it used to. You know, there's that inherent piece of you've been nurturing that audience for so long, right? Mm -hmm. And you kind of, you just kind of start to intuitionally feel like what you know, what's going to happen. It's not that way. And I'm hearing that from many indie film programmers. When I'm down, you pick me up You and me, we shiny dust And we won't ever get enough They don't know They don't know In your eyes, I put my trust Baby, you're my all-time favorite drug Let them keep talking There's a difference, I think, between being someone who loves the arts, loves theater, loves film, and being someone who is entrepreneurial and a business leader, and also having to sort of reach into the community and sweet talk donors and all, all of these kinds of things. 
these things don't have to be intention, but they're not the same. And, and you seem to occupy both of those characteristics or frames. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, is that, do you have a preference for one or the other? Are you both? Is one hard work more so than the other? Or does it just fit naturally into who you are? I would say it fits very naturally for me. Um, I don't find having conversations with donors a difficult situation. Um, my fundraising strategy is if you don't ask, the answer is no. Um, I have a nameplate that how it hangs in my in my office that says Billy J. Estes, community instigator. And I really, I really like how that feels. Um, because I do love the arts. I love historic buildings. I love movies, but more importantly, and all of those pieces is I really love our community that I live in and I really want it to be a better place. And if I get to do that through my different brain channels that happen in my head, um, that's what I, I'm blessed to be able to have that opportunity. I know you've been recognized for your community leadership. I, I don't actually know what this award is, so I'm going to ask you. You were recognized in 2019 by the Nebraska Arts Council and Humanities Nebraska with a Bitsy Award, but I, I don't know what that is and, and for what accomplishments you were being recognized. That was a big surprise to me. Uh, that's kind of their backstage behind the scenes award for somebody who's moving and a shaken, so to speak, and, and keeping things moving in a forward motion. Um, but that was an honor to receive from the Arts Council. Also, during the pandemic, uh, received a congressional award from Senator Adrian Smith for uh, innovation, as well as uh, an award from Senator John Stenner and the Scottsbluff Gearing Chamber of Commerce Visionary Superstar Award during that period of transition and innovation, which really just should be termed, I was trying to figure out how to survive. I know you were raised smack dab in the middle of Nebraska on a farm uh, near a small rural community. Um, what memories stand out to you from your childhood? Well, if I think about, uh, you know, I was raised in Custer County, north of Broken Bow. Um, community was a big piece of the puzzle and still is for my family that lives uh, in the Custer County area. Uh, I remember fundraising activities. I Probably my first memory of probably actively being involved in some type of a community fundraiser would have been about third or fourth grade selling cookbooks for a new playground, which I believe is still there. Uh, I haven't went to go look lately, but getting that taste of uh, doing good for others and not necessarily for your own personal benefit happened at a very young age for me. Um, I also had some really interesting uh, exposure to the arts uh, I remember Yanni coming to the Broken Bow Middle School when I was probably fourth, fifth grade. Uh, and then when I would have been uh, about a freshman, uh, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. and experienced the Kennedy Center for all of its glory that it is. Uh, I was there three weeks and, and took in 17 performances. Um, so unlike other people's trips to D.C.'s, um, I had a, you know, I had a, I was there I was homeschooled through high school, so I had this flexibility to, to do lots of things that maybe a student may not do on a, a typical DC tour. Um, and those, I think, life experiences as a young person has really shaped my kind of 
desire to see a better community and a better world for us all to live in. So you talked about those experiences, which are pretty wonderful, but also by age 15, you were also running your own business with pedigree dogs and you were, um, to, to put some scale to this, at that tender age, your business was already earning uh, six figures. There's a certain vim and vigor to your personality and your drive. Have you always been an entrepreneur, an instigator, an innovator, this pioneer? Well, I think I attribute that to growing up on a farm uh, and particularly to my dad. Uh, I should give props to, you know, he always encouraged uh, my siblings and I to ask questions and to figure out answers and discover other options and opportunities to rather was it fix the fence or buy a truck or go to a job you know there was always that dialogue of conversation and i still have those with him today so uh i think that that's where i would attribute that to and interesting enough uh, I have three siblings, and we all essentially have been an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, or have worked for ourselves most of our adult lives already at this point. Um, so there's something I think about being an Estes, I guess, that I would attribute to my dad, and potentially, you know, even even to my grandfather on the Estes side of the family. From this rural community in the farm that we just talked about there, you were only sort of 17 or 18 at the time, to Scott's Bluff to attend a Bible college. Yes. Um, and clearly, given how we've talked about your career with Midwest Theatre, that wasn't the pathway that you pursued. But what was the, you know, what was the genesis for you of, you know, the move from the middle of Nebraska to go to Bible college? And, you know, then it didn't happen. But yet it has happened. I think about, you know, the, the Bible college that I attended, Platte Valley Bible College, uh, its its mission or teaching philosophy was about mission planting and church planting. Um, I may not be a minister uh, at this point in time of my life, uh, but I think running a community mission-based theater is very similar to nurturing a congregation of people uh, in the sense of 
you know, it's a community that we serve and we're here to, to do what we can do to make it better. There are lessons that I find myself referencing from my Bible college days often uh, in my job today. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what brought me to Scott's Bluff. Uh, I think initially that uh, the biggest reason to move was I was ready to get out of my parents' house. Uh, and, at, and at 17, uh, being homeschooled, that was a place that I could go. The kids that I had started public school within, that would have been our uh, junior year of high school. Uh, so I graduated early uh, and, and took on life a little bit sooner than, than, than my former classmates. And uh, I just really haven't looked back. In case all of this endeavor was not enough, which is already somewhat breathtaking, I read out in your bio that you have this um, quite large acreage. It's, you know, I think 70, 80 acres uh, near Bayard, which is down towards Chimney Rock. So yes, I, can, I can see Chimney Rock from my farm. It's a beautiful thing. So there we go. You've got this amazing spot. You farm that land. And, and so what was it that made you think, I'm going to leave the farm <laughs> in, in the middle of Nebraska, come to Scott's Bluff, and, and, then, and then you still pursue farming? Well, as a teenager, uh, I don't know that I had a lot of appreciation for for farming, <laughs> to say the least. It was one of my least favorite things to get involved with. Uh, and I kind of look back at times thinking, how am I back to doing this? Um, but after being gone from it for really only about two years, um, and that was in my, in my uh, early years in Scotts Bluff when I lived in town, it didn't take me long to... Uh, to long for the country life again. Um, and that's what kind of precipitated me uh, purchasing the farm. And as you mentioned, uh, in my teen years, I, I had a purebred dog operation. Uh, and so when I first moved to Scotts Bluff, I was commuting from Scotts Bluff to Broken Bow every weekend and, and often to Omaha or Kansas City over the weekend. I put a lot of miles on a car. And uh, I needed to have that closer to home or at home, so to speak. And that's why I bought the farm. And the, um, that part of life is of having a purebred dogs is, has have let that go. Uh, but the farm itself has, has stuck with me. Um, I have tried to sell it one time and I felt like I was trying to cut my left leg and arm off and decided that was not the right move for me. Uh, and that's where I, that's where I belong at. Um, and I'm very blessed that, uh, not only do I that I have a board here and a staff at the theater uh, that gives me a little bit of flexibility to, to spend a little more time on the farm in the summertime, but then in kind of return, I'm, I'm at the theater a lot in the wintertime. So it's kind of an ebb and flow, very been a mutually beneficial relationship, I hope, for, for, for all of us. You mentioned pumpkin and squash, um, and I'm curious about, you know, what does the farming operation more broadly entail? It's really turned into an agro-tourism uh, kind of enterprise. Uh, you know, initially it just was some pumpkins and squash. I bought a new tractor and I needed, well, not a new, but a new to me tractor. I needed to make an extra tractor payment. So um, I have dabbled in truck farming uh, as a teenager, uh, gardening with my grandmother, and, and even some here before I went kind of growing on a commercial scale uh, in 2013. And um, 
continues to grow, to be honest. It's like, what more can I do? Why do I do more? Um, but it's really, it's turned into the pumpkin patch at BE Farm. Uh, we have about 20 activities, a corn maze, you know, the typical fall activities that happen on the farm. Um, but I really love pumpkins and I love all the different varieties. Um, and I, we kind of have made a name for ourselves that if you're looking to make your porch look like the latest Martha Stewart cover or, or better homes and garden or country living, like come and see us. Uh, we have the variety of, of, of pumpkins and squash to, to help you do that. And I also believe in organic farming and I love to be in the dirt and not be worried about my own personal exposure to, to chemicals. Uh, and that's, that's why I farm organically. Has that not necessarily made you an outlier? Because I imagine there are many farmers in Nebraska seeking to pursue, uh, you know, those th- those kind of practices. That being said, do you, do you feel as if you're a little bit at the forefront of that? There are very few and far between organic farmers in Western Nebraska. Uh, you get Central Nebraska, Eastern Nebraska. There are much more operations that are run that way. And what operations are that way here are typically, you know, wheat or barley, you know, kind of more the the cereal crops than your corn and beans, etc. And then for me, the the oddity is that it's pumpkins. You know, like there's nobody else around and you know i'm sure it's at some points i have been uh, the conversation or laughing point uh, of the neighborhood farmers at coffee time like oh look at what billy's doing but uh it has uh, it has been a, a good uh enterprise for my farm So many stories and so many different endeavors that are so intriguing. I would imagine that you might look back on your life and see all sorts of inflections. And I'm I'm just wondering, what have you learned about yourself? And and maybe not least the last couple of years through the pandemic, but what have you learned about yourself? I don't know. Uh, That's probably an anxious (laughs) laugh there. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I really love people and I love people being happy and making memories. And that statement of making memories starts at a very young age for me and seeing memories be made and be a part of them. And then kind of getting to my teenage years with uh, the, the purebred dog business and 
people having memories with puppies and then coming to the theater and making memories with shows or movies and and now my own personal exploration of the pumpkins uh and people coming to my farm and and experiencing that that country living uh best piece that we have and it's odd that here we are uh most nebraskans that are make an assumption most nebraskans are not more than probably three generations off of a farm but they really have no idea what that actually really means and um you know i kind of joke sometimes farming is that career that you clock in when you're old enough to drive the tractor and you don't clock out until you're in the grave uh it really is a it is more of a lifestyle than it is um uh a career I mean, yes, you have to make your career out of it, uh, so to speak, in ways. But it is uh, it is very much a lifestyle. Amongst amongst like also like theater is too. You know, or owning a restaurant, it becomes just kind of your you kind of eat, breathe it all day long. And somehow they work for me together. You've been in this area in this field. You've been a community instigator. It seems all your life. Is there something next? What are you What are you thinking about? Is what's next? Oh, what's next? Uh, I I don't I don't have anything really particular that's percolating at the moment. Um, you know, I have a couple of really big projects at the theater, uh, particularly the you know our marquee restoration project, which uh, is a seven hundred and seventy five thousand dollar project. Um, so it's a very massive undertaking for us, um, and that's kind of where my you know, I see that 10 month window right now of, you know, getting this completed and, and getting the theater uh, not alive, but, you know, getting people coming back to the shows and engaged with us uh, in a similar level as we were pre-COVID and just continuing to, to bring challenging and different uh, programming that inspires our community. First time we met, you told me that I think it was... Um... I think the day we met was the first day that year of Burning Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> that might have been like that was the time. It would have been a fall date then, and I wasn't that, there. I was here. That's absolutely right. Because mm-hmm. I think you told me that you'd been to Burning Man five times. Yep, I went five times. Yeah. Okay. And I've never been back. Um, I often think about such things, but uh, that that philosophy of Burning Man might really be somewhere ingrained in a lot of things I do of that uh, it's a participant created event. And I think that we really have to participate in our living uh, and, and engaging in our community. Yeah. So Burning Man, Burning Man would be, is, is on a list again, but uh, I might not be able to farm and go to Burning Man unless I can find somebody to irrigate for me. I love the idea of, you translating an ethos of Burning Man into the work you do as a sort of community leader, especially through the arts um, in in that area. Yeah, we really, I think, I think too many of us go through life just kind of waiting for life to surprise us rather than taking life and surprising it instead. And uh, you got to, you got to create what you want to be and create and be who you are definitely a philosophy of mine. I have a tattoo that says B, which uh, 
often is referred to as my initials, but it's really about being present and, 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 and creating and being what you want. My guest today has been Billy Estes, the executive director at the Historic Midwest Theatre and the Skyview in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. Billy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Stuart. It's been a great uh, catch up with you. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at the website livesradioshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Lives Radio Show. The music playing in and playing out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for more conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. Thank you.